This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, July 1st, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Mark Haxo. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's scripture reading is Acts 4.32-5.11. through 511. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land and, or houses sold them and brought the, the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as they had need. And then Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a nati- native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the, apostle, the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart, that you have lied to man, you have not lied to man, but to God? When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in and found her dead, They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome. This is uh, Sunday, July 1st. Almost feels like the first day of summer. Not quite. If you're new here, uh, my name is Mark Hoxo. I'm one of the elders here. And uh, Pastor Sam is uh, continuing his second week of vacation this week, so he will be with us next Sunday. Uh, so we're studying the book of Acts and have been for the past few weeks, and today we continue that. But before we do, uh, I'd like to take a moment to pray, to ask God to uh, be with us this morning. So join with me. Dear Heavenly Father, You who created the heaven and earth, we humbly come before you this morning in prayer and thanksgiving. We recognize, Lord, that you are holy and righteous, that you're perfect in all of your ways, 
and that we are a sinful people. But we are gathered together this morning because of your love for us. The fact that you have redeemed us by the blood of your Son. And for that, dear Lord, we are extremely and exceedingly grateful and thankful. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that we may be edified and encouraged by what you have to say to us this morning. We are reminded of your love for us in that it is so great. Your love was so great that you did not spare your own son, your only son from death, so that we could have complete forgiveness for our own sins. We celebrate this morning the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ through whom we have new life. Father, I just want to pray for those from our church, our congregation, who are suffering uh, health problems this morning. I know there are several in our church who are, have been diagnosed with cancer, some who are going through treatment, others who are still awaiting that, others who have other difficulties, other hardships in their life. Father, I just bring them to you this morning uh, as the great healer that you are, asking that you would heal them from their, from their illnesses, heal them from their diseases, even as you have done throughout time. Father, may your blessing be upon us all this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've been studying through the book of Acts, we have seen that since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that day, that first, well, it wasn't the first day of Pentecost, but that great day of Pentecost when God sent His Holy Spirit to His apostles uh, we have seen that there has been steady to rapid growth in this early church, not only in numbers, but because of the apostles' teachings, uh, there has been growth in maturity as well. There's been growth in holiness. There's been growth in obedience. Um, and there has been persecution also. We have seen that persecution has started to come against this small movement that began there in Jerusalem, but no amount of persecution that the early church faces is able to deter what is happening there because God is doing it. God is the one who is behind the growth. In fact, the more that the church is persecuted, the more it grows. We can see that as the apostles go about teaching and planting new churches that they are, they are um, bringing with them supernatural signs and wonders for uh, the people to see, to demonstrate to the people that they are, in fact, the real thing, that they are, in fact, apostles of Jesus Christ. But their teaching is always centered on the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, most of the resistance to their message is coming from the religious people of their day, the people that were like the church people, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who felt completely threatened by this new movement started by Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself, they rejected when He was with them. Jesus Himself taught things that they did not want to hear. It was Jesus who was oftentimes pointing out their own sin their own false doctrine, their own hypocrisy. 
Well, during this time, the church is experiencing incredible unity and oneness of heart and soul, as our text indicates. No one is afraid of losing anything. Rather, everyone is willing to give anything and everything away to follow the teachings of Christ. You'll remember when Jesus uh, met this one young rich man who came to him one time asking him what he must do, what good deed must he do to inherit eternal life. They had a little conversation where Jesus talks to him about the commandments and this young man believes that he had kept all the commandments since he was young. And so Jesus tells him, well, there's one thing that you lack. He says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And if you remember that young man, he left sorrowful because he had great wealth. And it was great wealth that he was unwilling to part with. Well, while the rich young ruler went away sorrowful, unable to follow this command of the Lord, the early church members were of one mind when it came to selling their possessions and laying the money at the feet of the apostles so that they could distribute the money to any and all who had need in their midst. This was obviously the work of the Holy Spirit in their midst, and everything was peaceful, and everything was glorious, and everything was wonderful until Satan shows up. And he shows up to attack them from within. This is a story of Ananias and Sapphira, that story that you've undoubtedly, if you grew up in church, you heard in Sunday school, and you probably had your parents read, read you that story, and it was probably something that you oftentimes wondered about. <clears throat> It's a story of greed and deception and the instantaneous judgment of God. It's a story about a couple who chose to lie about a gift that they were giving that no one was compelling them to give in the first place because all of those who were giving were being compelled by the Holy Spirit. This was not a situation where they were being, you know, there was all this pressure from those who taught to give what they had, but this was something the Holy Spirit was doing in their midst. But they had just seen a man named Joseph, also called Barnabas, who was acting with incredible generosity. This man, Joseph, was probably a more wealthy man, and he sold a field or some property, and he takes all the money and he brings it and he lays it at the apostles' feet. Now, I don't know what was going on then. Was there like... Ananias and Sapphira, perhaps they, they seen what was going on and they, they thought, wow, we want to have that kind of respect and honor as people who are big givers. And so then they went out and they sold uh, their property, but they conspired amongst themselves and only decided to give part of it. But they, they uh, wanted to imply, and they did imply that they were giving the full amount. They kept back part of the proceeds, believing that, their lie is not going to be discovered. Well, as all lies are, they will usually be discovered. In fact, it's the very nature of sin itself to be discovered. Um, I know from my own life that those times that I wanted to hide a sin, perhaps it was a, 
a one-off sin or, or it was a pattern of sin in my life, um, it doesn't usually take that long for the for light to shine on that sin and, and, and it's discovered. And, th- and that's what ends up happening in this case. I think a lot sooner, honestly, than Ananias thought and Sapphira thought. Um, they didn't really have a whole lot of time to um, take back what they did. Well, this is a story of deception that you see where God acts quickly and he acts righteously as the judge. And uh, it's, it's very much similar to the story from the Old Testament. That story of the sin of Achan. It's recorded for us in the book of Joshua, chapter 7. And it's, it's the account of a, the tribe of Israel. They, were, they had just crossed over the, uh, the, uh, the river. They had just uh, crossed over the Jordan and they had, they had, they had uh, went into the land of Canaan and they had just experienced a great victory over the great city of Jericho. And they had seen amazing work done by God on their behalf. And so they were feeling really pretty good about their situation. And, and they were bolstered by this fact that they were continually experiencing victory after victory after victory. So Joshua sends a couple of spies to this town called Ai. Mind you, God didn't tell him to send spies there, but he's already kind of going before God, and he sends spies to this town of Ai to see what it would take to overtake that city, what would be required. So the spies go there, and they see a city that doesn't seem to be that strong. They don't see a really great big army, so they report back and say, I think only 3,000 soldiers will be able to overtake this city. So Joshua sends an army of 3,000, and uh, they find a very resistant army uh, in Ai. And and they drive back uh, Israel's forces, and, and many of them die. And uh, the whole uh, tribe of Israel is, is, is feeling extremely defeated. They're feeling very depressed, in fact. Uh, and so is Joshua. And Joshua goes before the Lord, and he cries out to him, and he says, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So here in ancient Old Testament Israel, the victorious progress of the people of God is interrupted by an act of deceit. Just as we see happening here in our story of Ananias and Sapphira, the enemy within proved to be greater than the enemy without and proved to be a greater threat to the unity and to the success of the early Christian church than any of the enemies that they had been fighting against. And consequently, God deals with it swiftly and lethally. In the book of Joshua, uh, God's judgment comes very quickly as well. God answers Joshua's prayer. He says, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. God wasn't playing around. 
God is serious. God is holy. And he detests hypocrisy. He detests deceit. So through a process of elimination, a man named Achan is found to be the one who had taken these devoted things for himself against the clear command of God. So he confesses. He says, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent and the silver underneath. So Joshua sends some people to his tent and indeed they find all of the hidden things, the devoted things. And Achan's punishment is swift. He and his family are all stoned to death and buried under a pile of rocks. You know, sometimes we almost get used to seeing uh, deception and lies and deceit. That goes on for sure in our world, our culture. But when it comes into the church, we ought to be extremely jealous for God in not allowing that kind of thing to come into our church, to come into our assembly, to come into our congregation, especially when you see it among the leaders uh, of churches. How many churches have fallen even in our time of our lives? How many leaders have fallen because of sin that comes in and impacts that person? Been many pastors who have thought that they could hide a, 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 a pattern of sin, whether it be sexual sin or otherwise, in their life, only to have it come to the surface and they lose their ministry, they fall in shame, the world laughs, the world mocks, the world, again, just wags their finger and says, yeah, what a bunch of hypocrites. I implore you that you not allow that to happen in this church. So, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, having the spiritual gifts of discernment and knowledge, rebukes Ananias immediately. There was no conversation that we see there anyway. He just comes in and lays the money down and says, here's the money. And Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Interesting, isn't it? Because Joseph and these others were being moved by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was filling their hearts to do what they did, to act with such generosity. But here, <clears throat> Peter points out, it's not the Holy Spirit that's been filling your heart, Ananias. The devil, Satan has filled your heart, and you're lying to the Holy Spirit. He says, why have Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So in other words, when he says you've lied to the Holy Spirit, that's the same thing as lying to God because we know the Holy Spirit is God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. Young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. You're possibly wondering, why would God act so quickly 
to judge someone to death without giving him the opportunity to repent. Isn't it Peter himself who later writes in his second epistle, chapter 3, verse 9, this, God truly is, or this where he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Doesn't seem like it, does it? Doesn't seem like God was very slow. And it doesn't, didn't really seem like uh, he was desirous that Ananias and Sapphira would reach repentance, does it? Well, this text doesn't really address the fact whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were Christians. I, I happen to think that they were Christians. I don't think they were possessed by a, the, uh, the Satan. I think that Satan was influencing them to sin, as he often does, even with us, right? Uh, and I do think that they, in all likelihood, and I'm, I'm speculating, but I do think that they were saved, but that there was an instant judgment from God to protect the church. And uh, there are times God is patient. He truly is. I mean, just look at our own lives, and we see that God has been exceedingly patient with us. But sometimes in, in Scripture, we see God judging sin and sinners very quickly. And um, the only explanation I can give is that God is holy. He's a holy God. He hates sin. He hates hypocrisy. He hates deceit. He hates duplicitousness, duplicitousness being double-minded. He hates self-righteousness. And sometimes he brings sudden judgment to remind us of who we are and of who he is and what our stance before him ought to be. Our stance before him should be always to have a healthy fear and a healthy reverence toward him. Now that's a sober reminder for us, isn't it? Because I think that if we just kind of examine our own life, sometimes we realize that we're not as reverent of God as we ought to be. We don't have as healthy of a fear of God as we should. I'm reminded of another occasion recorded for us in the Old Testament, this time in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where we read about King David and his desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant home to his, to his city. And so he employs a group of men to bring the Ark home. And there's a man named Uzzah who is there bringing the ark, and they had the ark loaded on a cart being uh, pulled by oxen. And along the way, the oxen, it tells us, stumble. And Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark, and God instantly strikes him dead. Instantly. No chance. Gone. Why? Well, <clears throat> Again, there are several reasons why that happened. One, I think, is because to start with, they were transporting the ark in a way that was not prescribed by God. They were disobeying him with regard to that. They weren't supposed to be carrying it on an ark. But the other thing, and I think the more important thing, is it's, it's, uh, as R.C. Sproul explained it in his well-known video series on the holiness of God, um, that Uzzah had the erroneous belief that somehow his hands were cleaner than the earth. 
that somehow the dirt, the filth on his hands were, was cleaner than the dirt of the earth. And that uh, when he touched it, he was actually a, a very sinful person touching a very holy uh, ark. And perhaps because he had been spending time with the ark before that, he had become so familiar with it that he had lost the reverence and the holy fear of God because of his familiarity with it. And sometimes that's what we face too is we become so familiar with the things of God. We become so familiar with his word, with his sacraments, and uh, the gathering of, of, of his people that we, we, we kind of lose a sense of awe and wonder and reverence and fear. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they too did not possess a healthy fear of God when they lied to the Holy Spirit, to God himself about the gift that they brought to the apostles. So upon hearing Peter's rebuke, Ananias falls dead to the floor and they carry him out. Several young men. Every church should have young men willing to do things like that. Willing to step up and, 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 and uh, do jobs that need to be done. And that church was no different. These young men come in, they carry him out. And uh, it's, it's, it's odd in our culture that they would just take him out and bury him. Uh, it would be weird if we did that nowadays, especially when, you know, the wife isn't even notified that her husband is dead and he's already been buried. But maybe that's how they did it back then. Certainly not how we do it now. Well, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And while the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. The sudden death of these two members of this early Christian community brought back a great fear not only to the whole church, but also to those who were outside the church who heard about these things. Now, the sudden judgment uh, from God, I believe, helped preserve the, and protect the integrity of this young church. Even those on the outside, they could not level accusations of hypocrisy against this church. They couldn't say that they say one thing and they do another, they they preach this, but they live that. No, uh, they seen how this early church um, dealt with lying and hypocrisy, how they immediately confronted it and dealt with it. Not only did they see how Peter dealt with it, but they seen how God dealt with it as well. Like I said, this is a very sobering text. Now, it's doubtful that very many of you, as far as I can tell, are tempted to lie or exaggerate about how much money you give to church, how much you give to God, how much you give away elsewhere. But the application of this text goes well beyond lying about our giving. It points out to just our own integrity as Christians about how we live the rest of our lives. Are you hiding sin in your life? Do you come to church services on Sunday morning 
pretending to be someone that you really aren't? Do you act like you have it all together when you know that you're really a broken mess and that you really need the gospel? Well, be thankful that God doesn't always respond with instant judgment or hypocrisy. Amen? Be thankful that right now you can still turn to God in repentance and faith, believing that His grace is greater than your sin. Take a moment to pray that God would change you by the power of His Spirit to give you a new and fresh desire to live your life in obedience and integrity and faith. And if you need some help, look around you. We're all in this together. Well, I want to focus the rest of this message on a couple of themes, two big themes that I think are inherent in this passage. Number one, the example that we get about the the example we see of supernatural gospel community. And secondly, the example we see of supernatural gospel generosity. You know, I've often marveled at the early church as it's described here at the end of Acts chapter 4. They are so willing to let go of their personal property, you know, for the benefit of others less fortunate. It seems like they're willing to hold everything they own in open hands, believing truly that God will take care of the rest of their lives, take care of the rest of their needs, no matter how generous they are. They really believe that there's no way they can outgive God, that they can't be more generous than God is. You know, it's interesting to note, as you read through the book of Acts, uh, the apostles, when they took the gospel to Jerusalem and then to Judea, uh, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, um, the gospel they preached was accompanied with supernatural signs and wonders. Demons were cast out. The blind were healed. The lame were given healing to walk and to leap. The deaf received their hearing, and even the dead were raised. But what you see as you go through the book of Acts is churches were planted, and then elders and leaders were established. Churches began to operate as churches do. And then the apostles would oftentimes make return visits. We know Paul did that. He would go back and visit. But when he went back to visit, there's no sign that there were any more, there's no indication there were any more signs or wonders. Like there weren't these great healings anymore or, or uh, you know, raising people from the dead or whatever. But what, what had replaced that was a supernatural community. And and while this is early on in the church, and and we'll see even in the next chapter that they're still doing signs and wonders as they're still progressing and they're uh, moving the gospel forward, but we see also an example for us of supernatural community, a community that is not normal. It is not normal at all. It's, it's It's a community that has been transformed by the gospel of Christ, taking a bunch of sinners Uh, and turning them into a church where each person with any means was willing to share it with those who had less. The Holy Spirit was working within the entire uh, converted community to demonstrate to the world that this was no ordinary group of citizens. So how is it that we, as Christians in the 21st century in 2018, how can we live this way? Do we all need to sell our homes 
buy a big piece of land, move there together, and, and share everything that we have? I don't think that's what's being taught here. I know people have tried it, but I, I think that what we're talking about is the extraordinary gathering of the church together. I've been reading a book that was given to me uh, called Compelling Community. It's by Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlap. They're pastors at the uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church where Sam and I had the privilege of going for a conference a couple months ago. And of course, Mark Dever's written a bunch of books, but this book is particularly uh, insightful. And although it's written uh, with the pastor in mind, I highly recommend it for any of you who desire to learn about what real gospel community uh, looks like and how it can be lived out in the 21st century. In this book, they talk about how the gathered community of God's people is different than any other community of people uh, because we are tied together by the gospel. We're tied together by something much greater than ourselves in our own personalities or our own desires or habits. That's why in a healthy church there should always be a lot of diversity because we're not gathering together because, well, as I grew up, and I grew up in a Finnish church, Finnish Apostolic Lutheran Church. We were gathered together, well, because of the gospel, but also largely because it was a group of Finnish immigrants had started this church years ago. And it largely remained a Finnish church. But, but in a healthy church, you're not going to necessarily see um, that, although you'll see that in, in time. Immigrants often tend to do that. You'll see a lot of Ukrainian churches and you know, different Filipino churches and stuff because they come here, they don't really know the language very well, so they, as Christians they congregate, and there's nothing wrong with that inherently. But for a church like ours, we really can't just be trying to attract people to the church who look like us, who think like us, who talk like us, who have you know, similar interests and hobbies. No. Our churches need to be a model of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. People of all kinds. People of all kinds of... People who look different. People of different socioeconomic uh, places. You know, poor people and rich people. I'm sure that in this early church community, there, the reason why there were people selling their lands to give to others because there were poor people who had no land. They had no things to sell. In a church like ours, there ought not to be anyone who's in need. There ought not to be anyone who is going hungry or homeless. Because there's many of us who have more than we need. And we ought not to be holding on to our own possessions as though it's our own. We don't need to sell everything we have, but by golly, we ought to be ready to share it. We ought to be ready to give it up for those who don't have it and who need it. Well, In the Bible, we have a lot of uh, what's called one another commands to help us to live like this. Those commands are there so that we wouldn't forget what it means to love one another and to serve one another. And so I'm going to remind you of what they are. There's a lot of them. But I bet you if I was to ask any one of you to give me a half a dozen of the one another's, you'd probably struggle to come up with half a dozen. So I'm going to help you out. I'm going to give you about... 20 or 30 of them. Starts out by love one another. Be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. 
Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Be of the same mind one to another. Do not judge one another. Build up one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Through love, serve one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Bear one another's burdens. Show tolerance to one another in love. Speak truth to each of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I bet you, you never thought that that was actually speaking to one another. I bet you thought when you sang, you're just speaking to God. But it says here to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Encourage one another and build up one another. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Stir one another up to love and good works. Do not forsake our own assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do not speak against one another. Do not complain against each other. Confess your sins to one another. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But if we walk in the light as He is in light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Love one another. Love one another. And love one another. We see this command over a dozen times in the New Testament to love one another. But God gives us examples of how to do that, doesn't He? I believe that as we regularly remind ourselves of these commands and view our fellow church members as true brothers and sisters in Christ, we will begin to live out and experience true Christian community. And think about it. We, we run into examples of how to do that ourselves all the time. How often do we respond to them? we see that someone is moving in our church and no one, no one volunteers to help? Is that living as Christians? Loving one another? Serving one another? No. So yeah, you sign up. If you see someone's moving, I, I don't personally like the, the, the act of moving furniture. My back hurts just thinking about it. But, but we help one another that way. I've done it. I've, I've done it quite a few times. And each time I think, next time I'll let someone else do it. But really, it's, it's incumbent on all of us to love one and serve one another that way. If, if someone is grieving a loss, don't, don't just think, oh, I'm not going to say something because I don't know what to say. No, offer encouragement, offer uh, comfort, and offer prayer. I mean, and here's another one. If you're invited to someone's wedding who's a member of your church, fellow member, even if you don't know that person very well, you should go. You should go. Because 
that's celebrating with them. That's rejoicing with them. If someone in your church dies, you should go to their funeral, even if you don't know them that well, because it's in keeping with what the Bible says we should do to grieve with those who grieve. If someone just had a baby and they're saying, there's a sign up on Facebook that says, bring them a meal, guess what? Bring them a meal! Someone's experiencing a tough time, ask them what you can do to help. I could go on and on, but the point is we are a family and God has given us His Spirit so that we can love and serve one another in a supernatural, unworldly way. Now, I've seen this happen in this church a lot. And I'm very grateful for it. It's a joy to behold when people live this way. I want to conclude this message by spending a little time on a topic that we all love to talk about. Topic of giving. Because we see that in this text. We see supernatural generosity going on. So you have to ask, well, what's going on? Why are they so generous? Well, we don't spend a lot of time talking about giving in this church, and I say that as a confession. We should talk about it more. The Bible is not silent about giving, nor about the Christian's responsibility to give. The early Christians understood this as the Holy Spirit led them to incredible generosity. How generous... Or stingy we are is often a good barometer of our heart's true condition. When we hold on to our money and our possessions with a really, really tight fist, it shows really how little we trust in the God who gave it all to us to begin with. The more we recognize, accept, and believe how great a gift that we have been given how great of sinners we are and how amazing the grace of Christ is that we have been able to receive the forgiveness of all of our sin, the more we can be free to be generous. But what is the New Testament prescription for giving? What is it that the New Testament really tells us? Is it a tithe? That is 10%. Is that what, is that what, is that what the New Testament tells us to do? Well, while many people believe that that's what the Bible teaches and um, certainly the Old Testament teaches that the Old Covenant, they gave a tithe, but it was actually more than that. It ended up being more like 30, 35, or 40% with all the other required giving that they had. So the Bible doesn't actually teach, the New Testament doesn't actually teach that necessarily. I don't think it's a bad place to start. I don't think that if you kind of target 10% of your earnings that that is a bad thing. Um, but what is it, that teaching? I think that the teaching in the New Testament about giving can be summed up in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6-11, where this is what Paul writes. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You've heard that saying before. You reap what you sow, right? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing 
and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So here's the order as I see it. Our giving to God should be cheerful, first of all. I think it should be proportional. Uh, I think it needs to be sacrificial. And it should be regular. So as this text indicated, first of all, it should be cheerful. This is the most important element. For it demonstrates that our heart is right with God. And that we're not being uh, compelled by other forces to give to God. He says not to give under coercion or compulsion. Remember this. Your offering is part of your worship to God. Your worship of Him. That is why we have our offering containers here at the communion table. As a way to demonstrate that this is an act of worship. That this is part of what they did biblically when they brought their gifts to the altar. This is like bringing your gift to the altar where you can bring. But of course, if you forget to put it in there, we do have a box in the back. And you can give online and all that. But that's, that's kind of you know, uh, in addition to that. But um, secondly, our giving should be in proportion to how much we've been given. This means that not everyone gives the same amount. Obviously, if you make a lot of money, you're going to give more because it needs to be more in order for it to be sacrificial. You don't make very much. A smaller gift is still sacrificial. Rich people can give large gifts. Poor person give, a rich person can give a large gift and it not be sacrificial. And a poor person can give a small gift and it, and it could be sacrificial. I love this story from Luke 21. Uh, where Jesus tells us, uh, or, or, or uh, Luke tells us about this time when Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And then he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Now, I don't ultimately believe that this means every poor person has to put in their last two cents into the offering, but this story by Christ does demonstrate the difference between large gifts and sacrificial gifts. Finally, your giving should be regular. This means that you give, give either weekly, bi-weekly, monthly. Uh, holding on to your money all year for a year-end gift is not helpful uh, for a church that has regular uh, monthly obligations and expenditures. And uh, the reason, one reason why I think it's so important to actually bring this up and teach this is, like I said, not because, or not because for, for one, the Bible is not silent about it, but a lot of times there are Christians who don't know. They don't know that there's an actually uh, biblical, uh, that this is actually a spiritual discipline just as much as anything else that we do. That and, and that when, when we bring our gifts to God, that that's actually our, part of our worship of Him. We worship Him with our tithes and offerings. We also teach, um, even as communion is only for believers, uh, we also, because we believe that giving to God is part of our worship of God, we believe that giving to God is only for believers as well. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning, Hold on to your money for now. 
God's desire is that you first receive something from Him that no amount of money can buy. His desire, as well as ours is, is that you would humble yourself before the face of God and admit that you are a sinner who has nothing to offer to God but your own brokenness. So I want you to recognize, dear friend, that apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope for you in this life or in the next. Either, you, either your sins were paid for on the cross of Christ or you will pay for them in eternity. So do not let another moment pass you by without you crying out to God for mercy. For those of you who are yet, if there are any here, I don't know. If any of you are in, your, in unbelief or, or if there are also those Christians here who are struggling under your own burdens of sin, listen to this well-known prayer of repentance that David prayed after he had come under conviction for his sins of murder and adultery. He says in Psalm 51, 16 and 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That is the sacrifice. That is the offering that God desires from each and every one of us this morning before we bring any of our other gifts to Him is that our hearts are contrite and broken before Him. That we have surrendered ourselves fully to Him, to His care and to his love, and to his uh, sacrificial offering that brings us peace with him. It is so important for us as a church and as individual members to occasionally examine the foundation of our faith to ensure that it is strong. Now we are going to have an opportunity in the coming months to exercise our faith and trust in the goodness and provision of God if we decide to purchase this building. Each one of us will be asked for an even greater sacrificial offering in order to raise the money that we need as a down payment for this building. Now some of you may decide that you're going to be sacrificial. Some of you may decide that you're going to sell some land or some other property to be able to do this. Please know that while you're free to give the entire sale amount to the church, you are under no obligation to do so. So don't lie. Whatever you decide in your own heart to give, give. And give it freely and cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver. Amen. Let's pray.